you know, as a producer, I, you know, I've read a lot of plays. I think I'm somewhere in the vicinity of 1600 at this point uh, in the 10 minutes that that rep has existed. And probably 80 to maybe even 90% of the plays I read are, if not outright dramas, definitely not comedies. <laughs> Um, or I should say definitely not. Some of them kind of skew the line towards dramedy or towards, <clears throat> I don't know, kind of some tongue-in-cheek stuff that sometimes happens there. But very few are out-and-out comedies. So when somebody writes a really good comedy, that really stands out. So um, to all those listening, if you want to get in good with Vet Rep, try writing comedy. And the more personal and traumatic the experience, the more you should be writing comedy, in my personal view. Um, and not everyone's cut out for comedy, and you'll find that out, I guess. But um, as far as my advice goes right now, give comedy a shot, because you will attract a lot more attention, uh, rather than bleeding into the white noise of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dramas that are put out there uh, for me to read, and I'm sure for many other theater producers to read. <clears throat> now, that's a very long way of saying Gene Champy is someone who is, if not laser-focused on comedy, I mean, that's just kind of her wheelhouse. And she certainly wrote a piece that attracted our attention when she submitted Unboxed to us, which is <clears throat> her play that won second place, placed second in our latest 10-minute playwriting competition. It's such a fun piece about writer's block and a writer almost literally wrestling with her characters. Um, really fun piece. And, boy, I think comedy does a lot. You know, uh, As Gene and I talk about the impact of comedy um, and also the, um, the common man factor in theater, that theater has acquired you know, a very frou-frou elitist reputation. And I love a good elitist piece of theater as much as anybody, don't get me wrong. Um, but the idea that anybody should be able to go to theater and appreciate it, that it's not just um, for people from the Upper West Side of New York City, uh -huh, is, is a compelling one. And I think as, you know, there's a lot of talk right now just as a pretext for this conversation with... Um, in New York City, there's a recent tax that is, uh, I think in March, it's going to start appearing for anybody that drives below 60th Street in New York City. So you'll get a $15 tax uh, you know, charge to your car for coming into New York City. And obviously a lot of producers are scared about that because that targets pretty much all of Broadway. Narrowly avoids Lincoln Center, I might add, but it does target Broadway. And a $15 surcharge on top of all the other large expenses one incurs to go see a show in New York City may not be the death knell of Broadway. And you feel like people are always talking about what's going to kill Broadway and nothing ever does. So probably it won't kill Broadway, but, but it doesn't help. And it doesn't help when you're trying to put butts in seats. It also makes me think that, uh, especially after COVID and with people leaving the city and um, 
you know, AI taking over TV and film, the need for live communal experiences, I think is going to be high because people want to be part of a community. They do want a kinetic, intimate experience. Um, and you can't get that in film. You can't get that in TV. And it's too expensive to get it on Broadway in many cases. So having someone like Gene, who comes from a strong community theater background and yet writes comedy for everyone, for professional theaters, for community theaters, for whoever sees value in her work and wants a good belly laugh, I think is refreshing. And uh, I love... I love her love of the theater, I love her love of comedy, and I love her love of people and wanting to give good laugh to somebody. As I always say at VetRep, I mean, we're, the first job is to entertain. Uh, there might not even be a second job. That might pretty much be it. Um, you know, theater's not church. You're there to entertain people. Um, you're not there to preach at them. And in its own way, I guess that is a sort of church. But anyway, that's a discussion for another day. Point is, I had a great time talking with Jean. Um, loved her point of view, and I love her writing. And if you have not seen her work, I highly encourage you to. Well, even a vet rep in the 2024 season when we actually do pot shots. Anyway, she's a great lady to get to know and a writer to keep your eye on. I'm excited to see what the future holds for her. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Gene Champion.
show, Jean. Thank you. So we got to start with the most obvious thing. I don't know how to say your last name. Campy. Champy. It's a, yes, it's Italian. Okay. Fast cars, good food, can't spell. <laughs> it seems like you've answered that before. People have yes, asked that before. Yeah, okay, yeah. got you, got you. All right, <laughs> Champy. Okay, I thought that might be it, and I was like, but I will sound completely illiterate if that's wrong. Um, where were you born? I was actually born in Iowa, in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Like most good Italians, yes. Okay. Well, actually, I married the Italian. Oh, you married the Italian. Oh, oh well, that's yeah. even I married better. the okay. Italian. We were married six months before he found out I could cook. <laughs> I mean, I'm not stupid. <laughs> 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 He's first generation American. It's like, let him cook. <laughs> hey, yeah, the marriage has got to pay off somehow. Absolutely. That's that makes right. sense. Okay, so Council Bluffs, Iowa. So that's near Nebraska, right? Near the Nebraska border? It is. It's across the river from Omaha. Okay. Um, did it have, I know now it actually has a bit of an art scene in Council Bluff. Did it have one then? It, it you know, not, not so much, not really. Um, okay. although that's kind of where I started in theater. I was a little kid and my mother took me to the Chanticleer theater for their kids camp. And, um, I think I was probably a little bit too young, still stuck in my concrete thinking because I was absolutely offended that they kept trying to tell me I was a tree when obviously I was a little girl and not a tree. <laughs> so you were a diva. You were an onstage diva to begin with. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, now, was your father in the service at the time? Is that why you were there? Uh, no, actually, uh, my family has been from Council S for several generations. Oh, wow. uh, one of the first families to come into Council Bluffs and settled that area. And uh, wow. yeah, so they're all, my family's all buried up on the hill there in Council Bluffs. Wow. Okay. So how long did you live in Council Bluffs? Were you there your entire childhood? Uh, I was there until just about the time I turned nine. My dad worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So he was, they, um, I think it was like the middle of January, they offered him a position in Galveston. And, you know, when you've got blizzard conditions in Omaha and they're offering you a position in Galveston, you probably don't even care what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so up to that point, being in Iowa, um, who were you? I mean, you're nine years old. I mean, did you have a proclivity for the arts? Where did you think, what did you dream of? What, what was the dream for you at that age? Um, you know, I, I think I've always had a creative spirit. My mother was always fostering that. Uh, she was a librarian. So um, I was reading books and she was reading to me. Um, I remember as a little girl, she took me to Omaha to the opera as a little girl and told me that I didn't necessarily have to like opera but I had to try opera. I didn't like opera, but you know, hey, I've tried opera and I know why I don't like opera. So. <laughs> why don't you like opera? Uh, because I have no idea what they're saying. And it's just so over the top kind of, and actually I have a very, I have a good friend who is an opera singer now. And, uh, and so I've learned to change my opinion. Well, plus you married an Italian. Right, doesn't that right? Happen? Right, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's like that was one of the things they check before you walk down the aisle. Is you know, <laughs> right, right? Do you put sugar I, in your gravy? And you know, do you like a good puccini? Do you opera? like a good opera? Yeah, seriously. 
I think I right. heard that recently. Somebody said some. Uh, I can't remember who I was talking to, but somebody said something about the fact that uh, when you approach different ethnic groups to contribute to nonprofit theater, they're like, oh, never approach the Italians. They only give to opera. Unless it's an opera, they're not going to give to it. I was like, <laughs> I never thought of it that way. And I was like, huh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, anyway, um, there you go. So um, so obviously, uh, I mean, having a librarian as a mom, I mean, you know, you're reading books, you're kind of immersed in literary culture, right? Yeah. What changes when you go to Galveston? Um, I I felt uh, a little out of place and... Um, and was trying to find my tribe, you know, about that age. And so I was taking piano lessons and I had joined the junior high band playing French horn. And um, not too long into that, my piano teacher told my parents that she had had two failures in her life. And that was her first marriage and me. <laughs> wow. And... I know, right? And then I may not cut out for music. (laughs) So maybe because I don't like opera. So so I thought, okay, well, I mean, if I'm not cut out for music, why am I in the marching band? And um, so I I went over to the theater, to the theater class, and and it was and that was my home. I was I played the lion in the coward the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz. And it, I was hooked. I was done. There, there I was. But presumably, if music didn't like you, you liked music, right? I mean, you were doing the band. You were taking all these classes. Did you like it before? Well, you know, I, I was in Texas. So you have to understand the Texas culture of Friday night football. Oh, yeah. So all the cool kids were in the marching band that weren't playing football. And so... I'm thinking, well, that's where you so go. Pressure. Right. Yeah. Is that everybody's in the band? I'll go be in the band. And that was, I soon realized I'm I'm not a follower. I'm <laughs> I want that center stage spotlight. Yeah. So who was in the drama club? If the if the other if the cool kids are either playing football or in the marching band, who's in the drama club? All the, the interesting opposite. people. Ah, okay. All the really interesting people. All the, um, the creative, fun, interesting, different kind of people the these were the people that were accepting and inclusive and it's like they didn't they didn't care you know who you were or what you were or how odd you were I mean it's like it, it was just a very creative fun um group of people and I thought well this is where I belong I don't belong in the middle of a football field with a French horn <laughs> it's true yeah that's fair that's a yeah that's a the way you put it I can't think many people would want to be that person. What appealed to you when you started taking it? Was it I'm assuming it was an actress that really you were starting that's, to fall in love with theater. That's where I started. And and about that same time, I had um I had a fabulous mm-hmm. English teacher. And um, so and I I loved this English teacher and what she was teaching, and she really encouraged me as a as a writer and um and to study different writers and Edgar Allan Poe and the fall of the house of usher and Osmandius it was just the the magic of words mm. and then um by the time i got into high school english she had moved to the high school so i got to mm. be in her class again and um so it was and and actually my first play my first full length play 
she she paid the fee for me to submit it to the Pulitzer. Really? Yes. Well, that was and aiming high. high. Okay. Yes, wow. but you know, when you have somebody that believes in you like that, now I will point out that some schmuck submitted Hamilton. Really? Really? And they chose that over my first play. Boy, there's no prizes for taste. I still have some you. sour grapes. <laughs> yeah, not... Well, yeah. so let's... Um, let me ask you about, I mean, obviously the English class seems like it made a huge impact. Do you think, do you think it's crucial if you're going to pursue a life in the theater, or even if you're just interested in theater, that English has to be kind of going parallel, you, that you have to be a reader, you have to be a lover of literature, you have to be a lover of the, of the, of words. It, is that required? Or is that just what, what your path seemed like it was taking? I think that was just my path because, and I think that, you know, especially in, in community theater, you, you have exactly that you have community, you have people, you have people that during the day are engineers or accountants, or, you know, they're running a nonprofit or, you know, they're, they're, a, they're working construction or pharmacy. They come from all different places and theater kind of gives you just that opportunity to put down whoever it is you are during the day and and put on something somebody else and and be whoever to be a, a lion if you want. It's um so I don't I don't think that necessarily you have to have that kind of background because I would never want to put that out there and then there's some engineer out there going, well, I guess I won't go try that then. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's weird because, but even if it's an engineer, do you think, do you think a love of words is important? Let's say maybe even if not a, a formal study of English, I don't know. I, I'm thinking out loud. I'm not sure I'm wedded to this. I'm just interested what you think. I think maybe as a playwright, more so as a playwright mm -hmm. to, to, not so much just to, to be in theater because I mean, there's some great technical people in theater. I mean, sure, there's sure. sound and light designers that are just amazing. Um, but I think as a playwright, it's important that you that you hear language, you hear um, nuances, uh, that you understand the power of words, of one word, how one word can change everything. Um, so, so in that, I think that a, a background in language in literature is is more important did you notice your ear changing as you were doing more theater and getting into more formal studies of reading did you notice that like you would listen to conversations go huh that's interesting they use that word or the way semantics you know what verbiage people use when they're talking did any did that ever start to happen for you or oh, did yes. it happen at that age uh, you know, I don't think quite that that early. I think I listened to to people um, because I was more focused as an actress that to to listen to how someone spoke so that I could I could embody that. I could put that into a character. I could use that to create a character. Now, as a playwright, I listen to it again to create a character, but from a different perspective. Do you think you need to be an actor to be a playwright, at least to some degree? 
I think so. Yeah. I mean, I do. I, I believe that because if, if you have never been in a play where your character has, is on stage and has nothing to say for two and a half pages and you're just stuck standing on stage doing nothing, trying to figure out what kind of business can you do to occupy yourself so you don't feel so awkward. Unless you've had that experience, you're probably pretty likely to write that two pages where you've forgotten somebody on stage. That's funny that that was your first thought was for that poor person that's left trying to figure out what business to do. That's funny. Yeah. What about yeah. what about the um can you have can you be in a room with people while you write or do you need kind of have a little bit of privacy so you can act out things a little bit and make the faces and mouth of words and do that? And you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I don't I I think that I I would um I would probably need to be in a room by myself because um my my sons tell me I have a little bit of ADHD. So it's like, oh, hey, look at that. Oh, I wonder what that, what's here in the drawer? Ooh, I didn't remember I have that. Let's play with it. You know, it's like, oh, I wonder how many staples I can shoot across the room. Got you. So you need a padded cell. Yeah, you need no yeah, distractions, nothing. Yes. Yeah, I got yes. you. You're that guy. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. So, um, so in high school, as you're acting, uh, were you, what was the first thing you were writing for stage? What was the first thing you, you dared know, to write for stage? I didn't really start writing for the stage my my until shoot long long into I was in my fifties. Okay, all I, right. I just turned fifty. My husband had his job had sent us to Saudi Arabia, so I was I took two teenagers and a ten year old dog and went to the Middle East, and um, found that I had absolutely nothing to do. I mean nothing. I mean, you walk the dog in the morning and then you're done. So, um, as a, as a writer, because I had been working in corporate communications and writing magazine features, I had a newspaper column for 12 years. So as a writer, somebody said, it's like, well, you're a writer, write a novel. Well, I don't know how to write. I don't, I'm not a novelist, even though I read a lot of books. I'm, I didn't think I was a novelist. I thought, well, I think in plays, my, I, Think I see it in my head in, as a play. So I thought, okay, well, I'll write a play. Except I had absolutely no idea how to do that. So I applied for an online mentorship. And um, they asked about all of my theater background. It's like, well, I played a rock in Reader's Theater in <laughs> junior high one time. Um <laughs> So, um, and then they wanted samples of my work. And um, and so then Sharon Pollock, who was um, a preeminent Canadian playwright, saw my file and chose to mentor me through my first play, which um, when I found that out, I didn't know if I wanted to cry or vomit because I thought, oh my God, she's going to expect me to right, do right. something. And I have no idea what I was doing, but she was a, a lovely, encouraging, patient, patient mentor and uh, became a very dear friend of mine. And uh, and I, I wrote that first play and it's actually had quite a few productions. It, it tends to stay in production. Yeah, I, I see that. And you very wisely going to dime you out because I think this is something that more people should do. But in your signature block, you always have which productions are going on of your shows, which I think is a really smart 
move and very cool. Um, and that was yeah. Potato Gumbo that was your first play, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I want to get to that. But now I unintentionally fast forwarded us uh, from high school all the way to Saudi Arabia. And I want to take my time when we get to Saudi Arabia okay. because I really got a lot of questions for that. So okay. in high school, uh, as you're moving through high school, are you, is theater the path at that point? What did your career look like? What do you think you're going to do after high school? Yeah, I mean, I I went to college on a my freshman year on a theater scholarship, okay. and to a to a small uh, liberal arts college, and it took me about a year to well, not even the whole year. I mean, probably halfway through the year, I realized that I was going to starve to death, and um and didn't see that as an attractive option. Why did you so, think you were going to starve to death? Um, because that's what because that's what theater majors do. Okay. So it wasn't anything about you. It was just about the job, the the career track. Yeah. And I mean, this is, this was the early eighties and uh, I'm in Texas. And so, um, you know, it's, it it was, I just, I just didn't think I had uh, the, the level of talent or determination or financial backing to really make that run at it, that it would take, you know, to show up in New York and have and do the auditions and you know just really make right i didn't i didn't think i had that in me i didn't i I knew i didn't you knew you didn't you knew that there was a talent deficit as an actress i I don't know that it was necessarily a talent deficit i didn't have i didn't have um the financial ability to do that uh okay you know i didn't i didn't have the the finances you know to get home for spring break yeah so um so i i transferred into a into a large state school i went to texas tech university changed my major to english (laughs) another lucrative field yeah oh yeah because i wasn't gonna starve there (laughs) and um and i thought okay i'm gonna starve so then I changed over to psychology and I'm mm. thinking, okay, this is also kind of cool. And uh, my dad pointed out that he was only going to help me get one degree, which meant I would end up as a social worker and God bless those people, but that probably wasn't me. And um, so then I ended up at career placement and planning <laughs> and they said, you know, have you been to MassCom? I oh, well. didn't even know what MassCom was. So I ended up getting a degree in public relations, which sort of pulled that theater, psychology, English. And I I, I graduated and became a copywriter uh, working in a PR firm, doing a lot of copywriting, press releases, corporate communications, the things that I did to feed myself. But I always had theater on the side. So I guess there's no way, to, uh, less blunt way of asking this. Why were you so broke? I mean, you had a dad that had a pretty good job. And a mom that was working, what, what, was it just they didn't want to fund you that much? Um, you know, my dad paid for my dad paid for what it took to keep me in college. Okay. So he, you know, room, board, books, uh, and and the rest of it, you know, was on me to figure out. So, but if but if I was going to graduate with a theater degree and go to New York City. I mean, you know, it's like I graduate from college. He's going to break my plate and, you know, paint my room. So it's like you got a degree off you go fly or don't. And um, and which, quite honestly, I deeply respect that philosophy. 
and have, you know, told that to my sons as well. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it, and it builds a, a level of resilience and, and problem solving and perseverance. So, um, I'm, I'm a fan of a little tough love. So he would, he kept me in college, paid the tuition books, room and board, but anything beyond that, I was selling plasma. <laughs> Were you? Yeah. I sold plasma. Really? I wrote other people's letters home i there was one guy i used to write all his letters to his hometown girlfriend while he was dating another girl i typed papers because this is before the computer um yeah tell tell me you've written something about that that's amazing that's hilarious I, i wrote i wrote jingles for your answering machine oh come on that's hilarious Yes. That, have you written about this? Is there material being generated about this? I, you know, there probably should be. <laughs> there really should be. That seems People like people today don't even know what an answering machine well, is. That's true. Writing girl, writing letters home for some to somebody's girlfriend though while they're dating somebody else. That yeah. oh my lord, that's wild. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah, yeah. I I I hope you write something on that. Um, in retrospect. Have you ever thought about what would have happened had you stayed with a theater degree and tried to go to New York City? Do you have any idea what that would have looked like? You know, I I don't. You, you know, it's um I I have had such a an amazing journey mm. and it's it's been I I guess I'm not I'm not one to wish for things that I couldn't have or mm. that can't be. Um you know, it's like I'm able to create so many worlds as a playwright. So if, if honestly, if if I wanted to look at that and say, oh, what would that have been like? Well, you know, hey, get out the keyboard and let's write a play about, yeah. you know, about it. And then it's like, well, shoot, you know. Then you got something out of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It wasn't yeah. just and hey, it's like, or, you know. Yeah, it's probably going to be a tragedy, but, you know, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> let's Let's write it. <laughs> So I, I want to ask a little bit about your dad. Um, you, what was it? What, what were your biggest takeaways being raised in that house? I mean, obviously, it was Corps of Engineers. He was moving around a decent amount for it, wasn't he? Or was he constantly staying just Galveston? Yeah, after, after he did, he when I was like four, um, he did a year in Washington, D.C. On a, on a project, but was still based out of Omaha. Um, but when he moved from Omaha down to the Galveston district, uh, he stayed there and and became planning chief and then the, went on to be the um, district chief, was the uh, district chief for the Galveston Corps and retired from there. Okay. So had, okay. And was quite recognized and um, received two different accommodations from the U.S. Army. So as a civilian. Mm. What, what did that mean? I mean, have you ever thought about what that did for you growing up or did to you growing up? Like, what what did that mean ha- being raised in that kind of house, especially as somebody that was tacking towards the arts, you know, at a young age in, in high school and then early on in college? Like, did was there a sense of um, breaking away or, you know, uh, what, what, I guess what was the dynamic that you felt? just being raised in that house and then um, trying to do something very different. You know, my, my dad especially was, was extremely supportive. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and even when I went to college, he told me that he did not expect me to learn anything in college to come out knowing anything other than how to find out. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to answer all the questions. I just need to come out knowing how to find out. So, um, so my dad had always been very supportive. My parents were, were sat through, you know, horrible high school plays and, um, you know, had, had been very, had always been very supportive. And my dad in particular was a great muse of mine. And, um, but my, my family of origin always dealt with stress <laughs> with inappropriate humor. So, so the greater the stress, the more inappropriate the humor would yep. become. So, um, so that's, um, that's kind of where I came from. <laughs> so that makes, that makes complete sense. Um, and, and going back to what you said earlier, that can't help but give you a sense of resilience, right? That sense of gallows humor, you know? Yes. Yeah, yes. I could see that. Um, it's, it's interesting because, yeah, I'd be interested in what kind of stamp that puts on a childhood um, to have a dad out there doing that, but it see, and it seems like it was a very good backbone that he gave you that that house yeah, gave he, you. Because what he gave me was discipline. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if you're going to do it, do it to the best of your ability, whatever it is. I don't care if it's making your bed um, or writing a play, do it to the very best of your ability and, and stick with it, stick with it until it's done. Um, you know, a, 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 an expectation of, um, a quality mm-hmm. had, had been instilled. My dad, um, as an engineer would not help me with my math if he could not read, um, my letters. I mean, it's like when I write, I tend to, um, write letter. My penmanship is very, tends to be a little bit precise because my dad had to be able to read my homework or he wouldn't help me. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now you had a brother as well, right? I do. I do. I have an older brother who, who was a recently retired as a very successful government teacher. Oh, really? High school. Yeah, at the high school level. Interesting. Okay. And what what was the, you said they both served in Augsburg, right? In, in Augsburg, Germany? yes. Yes. Yeah. My dad would joke that he, that he was keeping a corner bar in Augsburg, Germany safe for democracy. <laughs> well it lasted right so good yeah for right yeah. right it seemed to work he was effective yeah. you know i asked him if he ever saw combat and he said yes absolutely because um there was a point where there was a bar fight between the airborne and the infantry and <laughs> uh so did your brother would do was did your brother could join the military right after high school was or college was he um, a, was he an, no he he worked for he came out of high school and then worked for a, a couple of years and then uh and then joined the service did his did two years and got the the help with paying for college and then uh, on and got a master's got you got you got you got you what did you think when your brother joined what did that mean for you did it mean anything was it like uh, family business or but what, i don't know what was the reaction to that um, you know, that was, that was kind of a time where, yeah, I mean, it was, I was always very proud of that. I was always very proud that, that he did that. Um, and, and honestly, I think that, um, I think everybody should do military service. 
Um, but, um, and there's so many countries that that, that is uh, required. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was I was always uh, quite proud of him. When he was looking at schools that he wanted to go to when he got out, the one he was looking at, I thought was too much of a party school. So I, I sent him and his best friend who was also in, in Europe at the time, I sent them the Women of Texas Tech calendar. <laughs> so they both enrolled in Texas they both went to Texas yeah. Tech yeah they both went to Texas Tech <laughs> that's hilarious wow um okay so after college you start working as a copywriter yeah um was it fulfilling for you was it I mean I'm sure it was good pretty decent money yeah right um but yeah. how did you feel uh, what itches was it scratching for you you know, I I did enjoy it. I I enjoyed um, I enjoyed the companies that I worked for. I worked for the San Luis Obispo uh, Mozart Festival for a number of years, doing public relations for them, and and truly enjoyed that. Um, I had worked. Uh, we had moved to Arkansas. I worked for the Old State House Museum, doing uh, some PR, and then I had moved over to a to the one of the local hospitals, and I had the fifty plus demographic as part of my PR duty. So I had the mall walkers, and I had Medicare reform, and I had the gift shop volunteers, and I, you know, I just loved that demographic. So I loved, really loved what I was doing. So, um, a, a, it was about the time that our uh, executives were going to prison for Medicare fraud, um, which, hey, that's a lot of fun for the PR department. Um, <laughs> our hospital was sold and I got liberated, but I had just had my first son. So it was at that point that I started just working as a freelancer, as a contractor. So I became my own boss. Got you. Okay. So all those jobs, when you, so you were moving to San Luis Obispo and you're moving to Arkansas for all those jobs before. Yeah, because the Italian was yeah. finishing up at Cal Poly. So, oh, got yeah. you. So I moved out there when we got married. Okay, I'm with you now. All right, so now when you start working as a freelancer, so at this point, are you satisfied in life at this point? Was there any, and I'm not trying to ask a leading question and bait you into saying, oh, there was some deep, dark void in my heart. But I mean, <laughs> how were you feeling? I mean, was there any, were you doing community theater? Were yeah. You? Okay. So oh, that yeah. was your yeah, yeah. that was your consistent. That was your through line. Oh yeah. Attachment oh, through, yeah. through that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what were you gravitating to in community theater? What was what roles? What plays? What were you enjoying about it? What were you not enjoying about it? You know, I always I always loved the comedies. Um, that's just part of my spirit is is to be able to laugh at whatever adversity is thrown at you. Mm-hmm. So I always gravitate to the comedies. It seems like if there is a play with a crazy lady in it, it I'm, I'm, <laughs> don't even come out because I've already wrapped that one up. <laughs> what playwrights did you gravitate towards? Which ones? I love Ken Ludwig. Mm. You know, Ken, Ken Ludwig is is wonderful at at the farce. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of the of the farces that are just so much fun. But I saw. Um, I saw um, uh, the uh, premiere, the world premiere, Ken Ludwig direct his world premiere of Leading Ladies at the Alley Theater in Houston. Mm. And it was a first date (laughs) with this guy, I don't even remember who he is, but by intermission, I had laughed so hard, 
I had my makeup had run. I had to go to the bathroom to clean up my face. I had just laughed so hard and he left at intermission. Because of you or because of the play? I have no idea, but either way, it was obviously not going to (laughs) work. It was a smart move on his part because this was going nowhere if he did not think that was hilarious. What what did you think? I mean, do, was there anything in the back of your mind thinking that there was any traction to any of the theater you were doing? Was it like it was, was it just a lark? Or did you think, hey, maybe at some point, maybe I pick up a pen, maybe I write something? You know, I, I hadn't I hadn't really thought of uh too much about about because you know it was just I my life was very full with other things, yeah. you know. Yep. And and so the the headspace was was pretty full and happy and and uh, but it wasn't like I say until we went to the Middle East and and I ended up with really nothing and no one. It was like so, you know, the opportunity to kind of hang out with all my invisible friends yeah. uh, was was magical. Where were you in Saudi Arabia? We were in uh, Al Kabar, okay. uh, just over the causeway from Bahrain. What was your day-to-day life? I mean, you said walking the dog and that was kind of it. But I mean, was there, um, did you go to Bahrain? Could you go to Bahrain? Could you hop across the causeway? Yeah, we could, we could, we could go to Bahrain. Um, It's just that I, I couldn't go anywhere off the compound by myself, of course. And, um, you know, so, and, and really there wasn't a whole lot of places to go, um, you know, you, you could go to the mall, but I mean, it was closed a lot of the time, you know, in, because of prayer time and, um, and you can't, you couldn't try anything on, there were no dressing rooms. So, um, you know, so it was just, uh, not as much fun and, or you could go to the souk, but you know, you're going to be outside and it might be 128 degrees and you're wearing a full length black dress. And, so, um, did you have to do the hijab? Did you, did you do it or what did you No, wear? I mean, uh, I did not have to, to cover my face, um, mm-hmm. depending on where I was or level of tensions, I might cover my head, mm-hmm. uh, put a scarf over my, but at the same time, I, you know, and I was very blonde, um, at the time I, uh, I'm not so, I was not so gray as I am now, but, um, so I'm, you know, I'm a blonde Western woman in the Middle East, but I'm a theater person. And if I have, everybody's going to turn around and stare at me. It's like, hey, I got an audience. <laughs> Was this the first time you'd been somewhere that you couldn't do theater? We actually did do theater on the really? compound. Oh, yes. We, okay. you know, I mean, I got there and I'm immediately pulling together <clears throat> a troop of people to do to do plays to stage a, a play in the in the community center um you know we had like 36 different countries on the compound represented on the compound so a huge wide range of cultures and languages and but to to try and find a play that would um be universal especially a comedy that um that we that could be approved and would resonate even if maybe you didn't totally pick up on the language that you could still you know follow along with what was going on and um and it was fun and we were we were just a few days out from opening night 
when two of the actors uh, got sent home. We were on an Aramco compound and Aramco had sent them home. How many people were on that compound? Oh, um, I got, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, 1500 maybe. Okay. All right. So you could get a turnout. There were, there were oh. plenty of people to get a turnout. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was, it was, a, it was a good size. It was a good size. Rosh Tanur was a good sized Aramco compound. And was there a stage in the community center or would it just be kind of raw space that you'd be using? Yeah, no, we were, we were going to have to, we were mm. going to figure it out. So were you the chief engineer putting all this together? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you were, was this your first time being more than just talent? Was this your first time producing and staging and putting all this stuff together? I, you know, I had, I had worked backstage on a lot of plays. I had been involved with the community theater for, you know, a dozen years or more where we, okay. where we lived. And so uh, you know, I had been a stage manager and I had been a producer and, you know, I'd run crews and, and, you know, so I had spent a lot of time backstage. So it, it wasn't unfamiliar. Okay. Was it the biggest lift you'd had to do though? Um, probably. I mean, it's like, and the, there was some, there was some good support, you know, the, the school on the compound, the grade school on the compound had a really super talented, uh, choir theater mm. Uh, director, music director, who uh, jumped in immediately and got involved. So, um, so that was really helpful and fun. And and uh, you know, there was there was a number of people that that were really excited about it. So, is it safe to say that kind of like the woman that travels and has to find the yoga studio nearby, or the guy that needs to have a CrossFit gym nearby? Do you need to have community theater nearby? Yes. Is that your thing? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Right. And that's, I mean, it's like whenever we go somewhere new, it's like, okay, that's the first thing I'm looking for is the community theater because that's, you're still going to find the people there that are welcoming, inclusive, um, you know, fun, doing stuff. And, and uh, you know, the, the doors are always open on a community theater. Everybody is always welcome. What, how hard was it to find the play that you wanted to do when you were in Saudi Arabia? Um, it, it had some challenges. We, we were actually going to do, um, uh, the nerd, um, oh, okay. which the only thing that we thought might be a little bit of a problem with that was that there is a part of that play where they talk about turning into pigs and we thought we might have to turn into sheep. <laughs> Was there Just, any censorship? Was it the company that would censor or be sensitive to it? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Interesting. All right. Yeah. We we Do, needed to be sensitive to the to the culture. Okay. Gotcha. So <laughs> so uh how many roles are in that? Um, not many. Let's see, there's uh only about like five or six. Okay. What was casting like? It was actually, um, okay, first of all, my husband was voluntold um, that <laughs> he, he was going to be in it, um, you know, so it, it it really wasn't too hard, you know, it's like you just kind of put it out to the community and, and there were people who came out like, hey, that sounds like fun, I'll do it. Did you have to audition people? Um, no, not really. I mean, it was like. Certain people just made sense? Yeah, yeah. So, 
So that's something I've always wondered about with community theater is the potential for, well, for butthurt, um, because they're all people in the community that you see in other contexts and you go, hey, yeah, you are, you're an awesome dentist. I love going to see you. You, you can't do this role. And it's just it, like that always, I, how real is that fear? Is that actually a thing in the community theater yes. that you've done? Okay. Yes, because I, I, I do direct, um, I do direct now and, um, and it's it's tough. It's tough. And and I I had a director who did not cast me. And when she called to tell me she was not casting me, she made a point of telling me that. And her husband was also very involved in community theater. Was a popular actor in that same theater. And she pointed out that she had not cast him more than she ever had. So it's not that. And and two, it's like you you have to reassure people. It's like sometimes you're perfect for the role but you're not perfect for the ensemble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's usually, that's a, that's a great way to get out of it. You were perfect for the role, but you just didn't work with the ensemble. It was everyone else. It was everyone else. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. I, that seems, is that the trickiest part of putting together a community theater show? Uh... Managing the, the personalities being that it's not just, professional talent that you know can kind of keep it confined to the space but you're going to see them in passing in the community in other aspects yeah i don't think it's so much that it's i think the the bigger challenge is sometimes um you know the the creation of talent so you may have somebody who's you know been trained and have a lot of experience and talent and and you know, know where stage right is and where stage left is. And then you're going to have the person that this is their very first show. They saw the auditions and came in as a fluke. And so, and they may be good, but, you know, or you don't know until you're halfway into rehearsals that this person has zero ability to memorize lines. Right. And then it's like, okay, how do you motivate the set crew to actually get in there and build that set for you? And, uh, you know, so there's a, a, there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of egos and, um, you know, but that's family, you know, right, that's, right, that's right. just a family. How did the show come together in Saudi Arabia? Did it, did you pull it off? Was it good? Yeah, we were going to be great. We were all, I mean, it was going to be fabulous mm-hmm. until, you know, two of our ladies got left the kingdom and then we were dead in the water. Right, were you? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. it was done. I mean, it was like, there was no way. We had no understudies. We had no way to recast it in two days. And so. Two days yeah. before. Yeah, that's tough. That's tough yeah. on the pop. You couldn't do script in hand. You couldn't just yeah, have no, walk around script in hand. Yeah, that probably, yeah, that probably wouldn't have gone over. But, you know, hey, we had so much fun just even in the process. We had so much fun in the process. So were you writing while this was going on or? Yes. Okay. So at that point, is most of your day spent, I mean, while the play was going on, either putting on the play or writing your own yeah. play? Yeah. And was the, were you thinking, hey, this is a whole new chapter for me. This is a whole new thing I can do. And, and this is now, I'm now a playwright. This is something I can, I can double down on. Was that kind of yeah. a eureka moment? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Talk about the, um, that first play about potato gumbo. So, what was the process like writing it? Uh, it was a daily thing. 
eight hours a day only when you felt like it? What was your option? Um, maybe not quite eight hours a day. Sometimes, like I say, the dog did need to be walked. Um, sometimes I'd walk the dog twice because that's a that was a good time to just kind of go think through things. Um, you know, what was next? What was this character? What was going on with this character? You know, just to kind of to marinate uh what was happening so um <clears throat> but my um you know potato gumbo is about the challenges of aging and um at the time my my mother who uh was my stepmother except stepmother sounds horribly wicked and she was not she was a beautiful lovely gracious amazing woman but she had just begun her journey with Alzheimer's mm -hmm. and um and and my parents lived in my dad and, and my mother lived in a active senior living community mm -hmm. and kind of a 50 plus yeah. and they on Wednesdays had happy hour in the in the community space they had a happy hour on Wednesdays and I would whenever I would go visit I'd always try and go on Wednesday so I could go to happy hour because it was an amazing opportunity for character study. These people, and first of all, I've always loved older <clears> people, <throat> gravitated to older people. And these people were am amazing. They, because th at that point, their filters are gone. They have nothing to prove. They have no one to impress. Mm. They're, they're, it is what it is. Is that why and you always liked older people? I think so. Probably so. And, you know, just their experiences and their, you know, how life had polished them up, you know, it was just, they were just amazing characters and, and hilarious. Most of them, and like I say, because my dad was very funny, I think it was, it brought out the humor of, in everybody. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so it was always very fun. So when I got to Saudi Arabia, and I thought, I thought, well, I'm, <clears throat> and the other thing is one of the, the shows that I had done, I had been in, I had been in Arsenic and Old Lace mm -hmm. and I had played the, the ingenue Elaine and, and became dear friends with one of the older actresses who played one of the sisters who's burying yeah. in the basement. And she says to me, she says, well, enjoy that role because you're going to be my age and you're going to find there isn't a whole lot of choices. You do this show or nothing. And I was like, that's terrible. I hate that. But it was true. I knew it was true. And heaven help me, here I am waiting for somebody to do arsenic and old lace so that I can bury people in the basement. But I thought she is she is such an amazing actress. She is so dynamic on stage. It's a shame that she is not on this stage every single season, that they aren't programming something for her every single season. And I told her, I said, well, you know, maybe someday I'll write you a play. <clears throat> so I get to Saudi Arabia. I've got this, this going on kind of at home. And I've got this older actress who I've told I will write her a play. So I'm thinking I'm going to write a farce because I love the humor. I'm going to write a farce. And so I, I have these two characters, Gretchen and Thomas, who then immediately, almost immediately after their creation, they take over. They take over the whole play and their story that they need to tell is not a farce at oh, all. No. And so it, it quickly became mm -hmm. me sort of getting out of their way 
and letting, and I was just there to type. I just, you know, my job is just to type their story. So you were mainlining their dialogue. You were hearing the voices. You heard syncopation. Yeah. Phrasing. Yeah. Oh yeah. They drove me crazy. I mean, it was like, there was one point where I'm like trying to take a shower and I'm like, can you, <clears throat> oh, please just give me 10 minutes to take a shower. Can you yeah, get out yeah. of my head so I can just take a shower? So then how long did it take for that first draft to get done? Um, well, like I was working with Sharon Pollock, and so I had sent her my, I wrote that first scene and I sent it to her and she was so lovely about it. And she met and emails me back and she's very complimentary of like the typeface that I've chosen, um, my fonts, um, and then points out that, <laughs> that this, this play will be great in community theater because it has a cast of thousands. Everybody in my small town can be in this play. <laughs> and she says, and it will never go beyond community theater because anybody who walks on stage has got to be paid equity scale. Right, right. Do they say anything or not? I'm like, right, right. okay, well, I so back, it's like, I loved you, but I'm deleting you. Um, so it was you all that free... marriage of voices that you were hearing. It was just too yeah. many. Oh my yep, God. Sorry, guys. You were great, but I, wow. you over here are going to get compressed into mm. one character. And we came from a cast of thousand down to seven. And, um, and so then I sent her the next scene and uh, she complimented me, you know, like my margins were very crisp. <laughs> <laughs> and that this would be a perfect show for any theater that had an unlimited set budget, hydraulics, fly space, uh, a paid set crew, um, or uh, that we could just do a brief intermission. People could go to the lobby and get a drink and a snack while we change the scene. Oh, my Lord. Okay, oh, well, let's just pick this up and we're going to drop it back where we had it on the first scene. So it was... It was a whole lot of kind of that, these things that I knew, and I just wanted to beat yeah. my head. Yeah, yeah. I know that. I know <clears> that. <throat> but just having her hold my hand and say, okay, wait, you're not, okay, let's let's bring your focus in, yeah. you know, and so. Well, that's it, right? Writing for the stage. It's the, the logistics yeah. have to factor yeah. in. You can't just, yeah, it's not a yeah. movie. You can't just take off. It's not a screenplay. Yeah, yeah. Did you, um, what were the darker moments in writing it? What were the moments that you were like, shit, I don't know if I can do this. Did you have those moments or were you feeling um, pretty good throughout? A, a little bit because um, I had my home theater back in, in Texas had agreed to, they wanted to produce it. Oh, okay. So they, they had, uh, they were very excited about it and, um, and had a lot of support. You know, we were, a, a Dow family, because my husband worked for Dow Chemical, we were a Dow family that was on a Dow project, and I wrote this, and it was, and Dow was an underwriter, they were a, a naming sponsor on that theater, so it was going to be done oh, in wow. a Dow theater, so there was quite a bit of, of support behind, you know, the, the premiere on this production, and so my concern was that of my parents coming to see it, because so much of it was drawn not it was in no way biographical right. right but but still it was um there that's where that inspiration was coming from 
and um and they did come see it and and my dad um loved it always loved it but did tell me that it was probably a good thing that Jane was far enough along in her Alzheimer's that she would not remember it the next day. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Was it um as much as those characters were take were were telling the story they needed to tell? How satisfying was it for you? Did you feel like it had gotten like in a very good way, it had gotten away from you, but there was a farce you really wanted to tell after that, and and you saw the nub of what you really wanted to do, or um, or were you very comfortable with how it all went? No, I I I love that show. I I love that show. I love Gretchen and Thomas. I deeply love those characters, and and there there's a production of it um, in California next month, and. Uh, and I had an opportunity to chat with a couple of the actors about those characters. And, and I, and I just loved that. I loved being able to, you know, talk about, you know, who, who, who it was that inspired that character. And, and, um, and so I always, and, and I love their story. I love their story and I love how their story ends because it is a, it is a difficult subject, but it is, it is, a very poignant story that is and it's handling that difficult subject with humor of course yeah. and uh and with hope <clears throat> and uh, so so i'm very happy with that show i've always been happy with it um my the next one i i wrote during the pandemic and because um i hate christmas plays no. i I hate to be in Christmas plays. I hate to read Christmas plays. I hate to go to Christmas plays. And if I ever have to see a Christmas Carol one more time, I'll just really pluck my own eyes out. So I thought, well, fine, I'll write a Christmas play I don't hate. So I did that. And then um, and then I'm still in the pandemic. It's like, okay, let's start writing comedy. So, you know, it's like wrote in quickly. It's like a, that I wrote a comedy in like 10 weeks, the whole thing beginning to end. And mm -hmm. uh and and have had number and that's been an award winner for me and um but then my latest one is the full-blown farce i have finally gotten that big farce out of my system is am i reading too much into it that you wrote the first piece in saudi arabia in an austere environment and you wrote the next one during the pandemic in an austere environment is, yeah. is there something about is it because of the lack of distraction uh, you know, probably, and I and I think too that you know now, <clears> as, <throat> as oh, and absolutely because I we during the pandemic we were in the middle of Michigan, and yeah. so I spent I spent three winters and a pandemic in in Michigan, and um, which I think pretty much punches my card to heaven because I've done my time in hell, <laughs> and um, uh, so so yeah, I think that definitely productivity was definitely tied to having nothing else to do. Yeah. But um, since then I've learned to, you know, that I have to carve out that time and space. Um, and sometimes it's a matter of taking my laptop. If, if I'm really struggling with distraction to take my laptop and just go sit in the garage or, mm. you know, sit in a closet where there's no toys and, you know, no, and leave my phone somewhere else and, and just really create that, uh, that environment um, artificially. What is your process now? Do you have, do you have to write every day? Do you need to, is it a requirement? Is it a discipline for you? 
or um, be, let it come when it needs to? Well, quite honestly, I, I've just come off of a several month writer's block. Mm -hmm. So, um, so my, my dad had passed away in March and I, and in the months before that I had lost, um, honestly, all my muses. So, you know, all, but all the people that inspired potato gumbo, all these people had passed away. And then, um, our, the dog died for God's sake. Um, you know, so it was just, and then I just hit this, this writer's block. And I even said to my dad in, in, uh, his final days, I'm like, you know, you're my muse, you know, what am I going to do? What am I? And he's like, eh, go meet other interesting people. <laughs> I don't like other interesting people. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I really hit a writer's block and, and have uh, recently just in the last few weeks been able to sort of, you know, break that up and, and get back to, to writing again, because I missed all my invisible friends. Did you, do you need muses or do you need to be happy? Do you need to be in a cheerful place? Uh, you know, I don't think what I do you need, need to write, I, you know, I don't think, um, I need to be in a cheerful place necessarily because the the piece that I'm working on right now has a very salty character in it, um, you know. So, um, which is which is probably good too. So, um, I I think that I have to have I have to limit my distractions. Okay. And um, so so I'm learning to write without my core muses. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at my dad's memorial, I, 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 said to, I said, if you've never met my dad, go read my plays because mm -hmm. there he is. Yeah. You, you can find him extremely clearly um, in, in every one of my plays. Mm -hmm. So I'm learning to find other muses. And that's, that's been my new challenge is to, the, is the confidence to, you know, to, to fly on my own. So when you were having your writer's block, was it because you just couldn't find the inspirational material to generate an idea and a story? Or it, was it just that you're distracted with a lot of real world concerns? I think part of it was a lot of distractions with just real world stuff. And, um, and then to, you know, just the process of grieving and because I, I didn't find anything funny. I mean, nothing, nothing was funny anymore. And, uh, and so I didn't, so when I would write it, was you know, it's, you know, it's like I had this theater in my head and it was like, I mean, the stage door was locked. The lights were huh. out, you know, it was like, it was empty. It was absolutely empty. I could not even get a character to walk into the theater and stand backstage. Yeah. You know, so it's just because I just, there was, it was just dark. There was nothing and nothing was funny. And I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't know how to write things that, you know, because it's like, I wrote one like dark 10 minute play and I thought, yuck. Uh. <laughs> it's like, I don't even want to see this play. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and interestingly, interesting. And this is very funny is that the the my work that vet rep has chosen is about writer's block when was that written 
um, just before, uh, just before my dad had passed away at the end of 22. I, I want to say, because it was brand new. I mean, mm. it was the vet rep was the first place I had submitted it to. So it was brand new and it was inspired because I I'm part of a, a writer's collective that is based in New York. And one of the playwrights that is part of that, Michael Normandy, <laughs> you know, in zoom, he, I could see behind him, he had this box on his credenza and which turned out to be, you know, all these, these works that he had just not finished or lost interest in, or, you know, wasn't sure what to do with. And they were in this box behind him. And so, so that was really the inspiration for that play. <laughs> not that he had writer's block, but just, just having this box of characters behind him. When you talk about, um, you know, a very tumultuous, emotionally laden couple of months, obviously, that are going to deaden you into the point of writer's block and you've lost these muses. Was that the only muse you needed to write Unbox? was just seeing that image on Zoom? Yeah. Okay, because you didn't need because I was going to say, you did a lot with a little. You got one visual and you were like, yep, I can I can do something with this. Yeah, and it's funny where that comes from because I, I knew a playwright and in her job that fed her, she was a a forensic genealogist. Okay. I know, right? And so I, I asked her twice. I said, what is a forensic genealogist? Yeah, I don't know and how she, that's different from a normal genealogist, but okay, yeah, right. Yeah, I'm thinking, what? And yeah. she, she never tell me what that was. And at, at the time I was working with my ancestry stuff, and um, so I I decided for myself what a what a forensic genie. And so I wrote a twenty minute play called Genealogy, and about this guy who wants to impress this girl, but he needs to have some kind of impressive relative in his history. So he hires this genealogist off Facebook, and then we find out that she's actually a genealogist and you get one wish and she has brought back his great 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 grandmother who was burned as a witch <laughs> and, and has brought her back so he's got this pissed off puritan in his apartment when the girl he's trying to impress shows up so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's freaking great what what for you is the magic at the end of writing? Is it seeing it on stage? Is it finishing the the final draft? What, what what's the moment that all this pays off for you? Um, I I think uh, I think typing final curtain mm. is it, because for me it's 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 all about that spending that time with those invisible friends. Mm. You know, just have having that time um to 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 be in that place and and you know just the magic of that to to create them and know them to know these these people so intimately and and what their fears are and and i i had a character that he was actually a homeless vet and and so i you know the question so I, why was he homeless it's never said in in the actual play why he's homeless but he is homeless because he he loves wagner opera 
and his landlord evicted him. <laughs> oh, that'll because no one likes opera <laughs> or Wagner, yeah, or Wagner. So that's why he was, he had been, he, so he wasn't long term homeless, but he was temporarily homeless and was, yeah. So because he had an affinity for Wagner opera. You know, it's funny. I mean, you, you're writing about subjects with something that I personally love, which is a sense of farce and a sense of joy and a sense of, um, really finding so much fun in these subjects right do you do you ever do you find it's been dismissed that people want something serious have you ever felt the the compulsion or been advised oh hey hey you're not gonna get taken seriously just writing this stuff it's fluff like go deeper and how do you feel about that um and and it's you know, because like I say, I'm, I'm, I still have sour grapes over the whole Hamilton thing. <laughs> and, um, and, and I feel like if I'm, do, do I have to be writing something that absolutely is going to, you know, change the world? And I feel like I am because yeah. especially as the world becomes more divisive, we become more stressed. We become, you know, we're just desperate for that escape. Yeah. And, and how healthy is that deep belly laugh? How healthy is it to come out at intermission that you have to go to the bathroom and fix your makeup because you have laughed that hard? That is what we need in the world. We need more of that. And um, and I I just refuse to 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 bend because that's that's all I got. That's all I have to offer. That is mm-hmm. honest. I don't have, I'm not going to cure cancer. I'm not going to write the cure cancer play. I, I'm not going to write the play that is going to make things right in Israel with Gaza. I'm not <laughs> writing that play. I mean, although that is ripe for comedy. Sure. Um, sure. But the bigger problem with comedy now is, is like you said, butthurt. Yeah. Yeah. It, good lord you know it's like to be able to write comedy that you're i mean the whole point of comedy is to be able to laugh at ourselves right and and honestly it's so hard to get people to laugh and not get offended right right well to to make someone laugh is to risk offense right yeah because yeah. I mean, because uh, you're changing people's perspective, that's what makes something funny. Well, if you're really wedded to that perspective, you're going to get offended if your perspective is being messed with. You know, yeah, um, yeah it, it, there's no way to square that circle. And I agree. And I mean, you're saying things that are very close to my heart that I personally love, which is I, I think there's so much more health and potency and power in a good belly laugh than in you know most of the preachy stuff that i think people feel like needs to be good theater um yeah. and and i i think there is a lot more impact that comedy provides and i'll say i say this is somebody that re- is now read i mean in the 10 minutes vet rep has been around i think i've read i think now i'm up to 1600 plays between the 10 minutes and the full lengths and you know wow. 80 85 percent of them are dramas and which is why drama is my least favorite genre I mean, yeah, if you can do a great one, 
awesome. But I mean, that boy, that's few and far between. And I and it's such an obvious choice for a writer because it's like, oh, let me tell you about troubles in my life, or or, or maybe I have enough art to transport that onto characters. But you know, clearly you've got some axe to grind with that, and there's some dramatic takeaway, and there's all valid emotion. It's just delivered in such a conventional way. And the people that can, the 15%, I'm saying this for everybody listening, if you want to submit stuff to VetRep, if you find yourself in that 15% that submit comedies, your odds your odds of going to the top 10 in any of our competitions go up exponentially. Because And, and I say that knowing that some people just can't write comedy, so I don't think I'm going to flood the market with it. But um, those that really get comedy boy, I think there's so much more impact you can have. And I would encourage everybody to write comedy if whether and find out if you can write it, explore that, but give it a shot because there's so much, there's so much traffic in that. When you see audiences, when you're in the business of looking at audiences and their reactions, boy, you'd much rather have an audience laughing. It, it, that's yeah. that's an it, that's an indelible feeling that tells you as a producer, these people are going to come back. They had a great time tonight. Yeah. Don't and necessarily that, know that with drama, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's one thing Sharon Pollock said to me is like, when I got to the end of potato chemistry, she, as we were getting towards the end, she said, what is it that you want your audience talking about in the car on the way uh, home? Uh, <laughs> and you know and, yeah. and with potato gumbo i mean it's like there's there's a lot to talk about you know the the challenges of parenting your parents of of you know the challenges of of getting older and so there's a lot to talk about but you know after that with my comedies it's like i i want them quoting funny lines forever you know i just i want them to have that that just implants that that is so funny yeah. That they will, that they will s- still be laughing about that, you know, or something will remind us. Oh God, yeah, that was funny. Maybe <laughs> <that> was funny. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to ask you. So there's kind of a, a theatrical elephant I've been leaving in the room, um, which we should probably address now. Talk about the misperceptions, the misconceptions, the snobbery um, between community theater and professional theater. Does that rankle you? Does it bother you? How do you as a writer feel about your stuff being done in community theater versus professional theater? Just what's your take on that divide to the extent that there is one? You know, I'm, um, and I, and maybe it's because I, I write comedy that, um, you know, and you have to think of Shakespeare. I mean, you know, he's, he's throwing his comedies into, I mean, basically bars, you know, he's, he's writing comedies for, for the bars. Yeah. And and the the people on the street and the potato sellers, you, you know, hey, if if I can if I can make you know the construction worker, if I can get him to put down his fifteen bucks or twenty five bucks or whatever and come into the theater, I I want him to to leave with that same belly laugh as the person who is walking into the Kennedy Center. Um, did you hear that Kennedy Center? Um, <laughs> that, um, that you know that somebody walking into the Kennedy Center throwing down seventy five bucks. I, you know, I, absolutely, I want that same belly laugh because I, I don't, I don't care what stage it's on because my objective is to reach and get somebody in their life to stop for a minute and just relax and laugh. Mm-hmm. 
So if if you if you want to if you want to drop me a, a huge check for rights and you want to fly me in and have me there through the entire production process, I'm on a plane. <laughs> if if you if you're a small community theater and I had a couple of community theaters after the pandemic that I had relationships with that you know darn I mean it was hard coming out of that pandemic a lot of small theaters didn't survive. And and I I would trade my rights for a tax receipt. I would basically just donate the cost of the rights, and they would give me a tax receipt, and I could just file it with my taxes. and And I got a benefit out of it. They got a benefit. My work got done. People laughed after the pandemic when they needed to laugh more than ever. The theater didn't have a financial burden of having to pay the rights. It was all profit to them. Yeah. You know, so it was a win, 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 win. And and isn't that truly what it's about? Would you encourage playwrights to submit stuff and get stuff done in community theater? Get to get it done wherever and not be targeted solely on professional theater? Yes. Yes. And and I would I would scream out to community theaters to stop believing that you have to do the sound of music or you know that you have to do the same old same old same old same olds because they you know that's their name recognition stop that thought process and reach out and start doing new works because audiences are open to new works and especially if you've got if you can find a new work that is has had some testing you know that has been done in other successfully in other community theaters and i think that's one reason why potato gumbo does well because it's got a very successful track record um you know open your mind to new works unpublished new works and if you can and a lot of times for me i like to direct my stuff because i it's really easy to find what's not working and correct it right away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's good for me to see other theaters do my work and let another director interpret it. And to, if I can get a video of that, that's great because I will see that, wow, I left a door open here mm. for a misinterpretation mm -hmm. and I need to go back and either close that door or, Hey, that was, a, that was really cool. Even I didn't think of that. Maybe I'll widen that door a little bit. So I, yeah. I definitely yeah. think that playwrights need Raps. to get a relationship with a community theater, even if it's just a directed staged reading. My, my latest farce, I had um, the, one of the colleges did a directed stage reading and I sat in the back and the audience seemed to enjoy it. And I just wanted to crawl under the seat. Uh. Because it was so obvious to me um everything that didn't work yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but it was so important to me to have that part of the process and to to see where there was one point and I know it was part of it was a technical glitch but I think the audience thought that that's where intermission was I thought that's where where intermission was and I wrote the play and it was not where intermission was <laughs> So, you know, but to have a relationship with theaters that yeah. you can get the stage for, you know, I just need it for one night in between shows or, you know, 
that you have access to a group of actors that you can get to sit <clears> and do <throat> a table read for you. That's so important. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What goals do you have at this point? Is it something that you're just living in the moment and you're writing what comes to you? Or is there an overarching mustache twirling master plan behind all this? You know, as it, when I when I was a young playwright, um, you know, of course, I thought the goal was, oh, I want to be on Broadway. I want my stuff on Broadway. And, um, <clears throat> and I, I want Samuel French begging for my work. And um, and that over time has changed um, because, um, you know, unless you're Gunderson, I don't know that that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's really happening. Right. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I think my goals right now are just to keep my work in production, you know, to just continue to have the opportunity to continue to have people laughing, you know, to just continue to be able to connect, to connect in a world where all we do is disconnect. Mm. Mm. It's a pretty good ad for theater in general. Yeah. Yeah. Gene, tell everybody where they can find you, how they need to hunt you down, um, you know, Instagrams, websites, all that stuff so they can stay up to date on what you're up to. Um, I am at my website is the writer gene, J E A N, the writer gene.com. Uh, and um, I am on Instagram as Gene Champy. I'm on Facebook as Gene Champy. Any of those. I'm on, new, gotcha. I'm on New Play Exchange. If if you're a if you're a reader of theater, I'm on New Play Exchange. So I always keep always try and keep my new stuff up on New Play Exchange. Well, listen, this is um, this has been a blast to talk to you, and it, it you you said all the things that my in on my producer role just mean a lot to me. Um, and it's definitely, I think, I think you'll have made some fans out there of your work if they're not already familiar with it because i think you're i think the type of work you're writing is so needed right now and i think audiences i mean you're seeing it the fact that you have things constantly in production i think is proof that people want the content that you're writing and um i look forward to a lot more and uh you know we'll talk about unbox this year at vet rep there's a whole lot of stuff and we'll talk offline about it but yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff um, anyway to come with that. But this has been a blast. Well, just know that your inbox is my first stop whenever I've got new comedy. Please, I, I would be deeply honored. Absolutely. That was the savage wonder of Gene Champy. That really hit very close to home for me. Love talking to Gene. Looking forward to doing a lot more talking and uh god forbid producing of her stuff um because if the quality is as good as unboxed and the content is comedic boy that's that's a great combination and that'll be a real a real uh easy sell for audiences so write your comedies folks <laughs> that's the takeaway uh from that interview one of several takeaways but that was a big one, certainly for me. Okay. Um, I do have to talk a little bit about stuff going on at Fet Rep. There's not a lot to talk about. 
There's a ton that we have going on, none of which I can talk about publicly. But for anything you want to know, go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. While you are on the homepage, scroll down just a little bit. You will see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog, which also doubles as our mailing list. What that means is that every day in your email inbox, you will receive a little piece of veteran writing, fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, or a image of veteran artwork, followed by a bunch of shameless plugs of whatever we have going on, which right now, all of our content is pretty much this podcast, the literary blog, our write louds that we do every month. Uh, so check that stuff out um, as you see fit. But do subscribe because it's a great. We have a lot of big news coming up, and this is going to be the first place that we announce things. It's always the first place we put out our press releases and announce new things, and you know, and you'll be uh, the first to know about shows and content and programming and all that stuff. Okay, I need to thank our producer Mike Neal for putting this episode together. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of everyone at Veterans Repertory Theater, our thanks to Gene Champy. We'll see you next time when we dive further into the savage wonder of veterans in the arts. Mm-hmm.